from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. But soft, what light in yonder window breaks. Dan, it is Denise Pope. <laughs> you are. You're quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> I am. It's, it's, it's good. It's impressive. Well, today we were talking about the humanities, so I kind of want to channel it. Okay. Humanities, things like history, philosophy, uh, Greek, classics. Uh, so, Denise, weren't you an English major? And if so, how did your parents let you do that? Okay. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm a proud, card-carrying English major. I went on to teach English as a high school English teacher. One of my daughters right now has currently declared English as her major. So I'm incredibly proud about that. So, so this was the thing about choosing a major. I could not believe that there was a major where someone said to me, you get to go sit in the library and read William Faulkner. Or you get to go sit in the library and read Virginia Woolf or oh, Emily Dickinson so Poe. Oh my God. It was so hard. This was so, I loved it. It was like saying, go, you know, eat ice cream for three hours. I mean, I, that's how much I loved it. And, the, and I thought everybody else was a total chump. You, mm-hmm. have, you have problem sets that you're up all night doing. You have all the, I get to sit and read these classics. So I loved it. But a lot of people think the humanities uh, is not instrumental enough. It's not going to get you a job. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we, we had this... We've had this argument at the highest levels at Stanford. There's an executive cabinet, which is the deans of the seven schools, the president and the, the provost, and the very high provost. And there was this debate about sort of what kind of college degree prepares you for life. And there was some sentiment in the room that it STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering. Boo. And so we went around the room to, and everybody said what their major was. What do you think the number one major is of the intellectual leadership of Stanford? Wait, so this is the highest group possible. This is all the deans. And well, the staff. I, I don't know about highest. Okay. But, but. <laughs> this was, these were big wigs. What, do I, what was the, the number one? Was what? it English? Was it an English major? Come on. Oh, good try. Philosophy. 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 So not STEM. Uh, no, not STEM. So what do you make of that? Dan, I mean, is that do, do do people who major in the humanities um, become better leaders? I'm not willing to say. <laughs> I, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm a fan of the humanities. You I think, were I, you I majored we're, you majored in philosophy. I did, but my area of research is actually uh, how people learn, particularly math and science. I remember having this conversation with a colleague who was a trombone professor, and he was. Wait, there is such a thing as a professor of trombone. He was very good. Uh, he was very good. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but he would – He one day he came up to me and he said, you know, I wish I did what you do. It, it make, it's so important. And I looked at him and I said, what percentage of my day do I spend listening to music compared to like doing fractions? You know, and suddenly he sort of realized, oh, wow, this, this, these other areas really are important besides the, the science and the technology and the engineering. I mean I think it's in the word humanities, right? It makes us human. But, but I will say this. I get a lot – I do the talk to the um, parents when they're dropping their kids off at Stanford. Mm-hmm. I do a little talk with mm-hmm. the, the dean of students and we have to say to them several times in that talk, 
If your kid wants to major in art history, you have to let them major in art history. L- do not say they must major in engineering or the sciences. You are worried about them getting a return on your investment, right, ROI, and you have to trust us that the kind of education you get when you study the humanities or anything here at Stanford is going to teach you how to think critically. It's going to get you a job. And in fact, I just read that the tech industry – is looking and searching for humanities majors because they're, they're, they can always get STEM majors. And if they can't, they can teach them those skills. But they are looking for humanities majors to go to companies like the Googles and the Twitters and the, and the Facebooks of this world. Huh. Okay. I know. So there you go. Okay. We so, talk about so, return on investment. There so, you go. So I want to bring in some expertise in our Good. naive bring, discussion. Bring in the experts. <laughs> so we have uh, Professor Caroline Winter with us. She's a professor of history, and she's director of the Stanford Humanities Center, which is the largest humanities center in the nation and perhaps the world. She studies uh, European and American history and recently wrote a book called The American Enlightenment. And she was honored by the Smithsonian for the work she's been doing on digitally mapping the social network of Benjamin Franklin. So so thank you very much yeah, for coming, welcome, Caroline. Caroline. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I need to start point blank. What what are the humanities? Like, does art count as a humanity? Art counts as a humanity. <laughs> well, th- I guess the best way to describe the humanities is as a counterpart to the sciences. The sciences are the way we explore the natural world, and the humanities are the tools through which we explore the human world. So everything that is human has been human, that makes us human, that humanizes us, that is under the umbrella of the humanities. So art that people create, words that they have written, thoughts that they have funk, that's the humanities. <laughs> So uh, this this is too profound a question, but I'm just curious. Where does math fall? Is that a human creation or is that the natural world? You know, I, that's a wonderful question. I think it's it uh, depends on which way you look at it. There yeah. are humanists who explore ancient mathematics. And uh-huh. we have some of the world's experts here at Stanford in ancient Greek mathematics. So okay. uh, it falls in the middle. Like mm-hmm. so many things, there are also well, historians of science. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so uh, – but it's it's really – uh, the things that that fall under the human condition that is that is the purview of the humanities. So it's really almost everything right, that has right. ever happened. The only thing that is not the humanities is what will happen. But that's not anybody's business, right? We don't know what's going <laughs> to no, no, happen. That's so social science. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. prediction, prediction. <laughs> exactly. That's where Dan shines. There it's you go. Making bad predictions. <laughs> my specialty. Uh, very interesting. So um, if here. Imagine you have to make the the case to a parent of of a five-year-old that they should emphasize that their child has a future major in the humanities. How, How would you make the case to them? How would you make the case? I think you always have to start with what the child loves because, you know, when you love your work, you never work a day in your life. And the the saddest thing is an adult who is doing work that their parents wanted them to do rather than yeah. what they wanted to do. Some people should do STEM. Absolutely. They should study the sciences and technology. But there are some 
students who should follow their heart. They are the ones who wanted to follow you, Denise, into the library to read Virginia Woolf. They're the kids who can't wait to start drawing when they get up in the morning. They are the kids who uh, actually enjoy art museums. Those are the students that you want to be allowing to spread their wings uh, at learning in in, uh, junior high, high school, at, at any moment, giving them access to books, to the minds of other people uh, who have lived before them. And so I would say just let your kid do what they love mm-hmm. and they'll take it from there. So I will channel my my dear sweet father-in-law who found out, uh, this was before I was married, um, found out I was an English major and said to me, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to make a living? And I'm sure he's thinking, she's just going to mooch off of my son, right? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that was what was going through his head. I love, I love you, Dad. But yeah, so there's this worry of, okay, that sounds great. Follow your heart. Be an artist. Be a writer. Meanwhile, I got Stanford debt. I got to pay bills. What, right? How do you answer that? Yeah, and well, I face that myself. I'm from a family entirely populated by scientists, and I'm the lone humanist. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, there's the lone ranger, and then there's me, the lone humanist. So and how, I, how does the dinner table conversation go? Well, <laughs> I did have to first tell my dad, you know, that he was writing checks for college, um, and I was going to be a medieval history major. And um, but I think that it, it goes back again to. You know, this idea that when it's coming from inside, when you can't help yourself, then you will always be able to find your way. And, you know, we can educate for jobs or we can educate for life. And the humanities do not always lead to a high paying job immediately after college. I would be lying if I said that. But I do distinctly remember in graduate school Um, that there were a fair number of students who joined us in our PhD program who had gone into other fields that they had found soul-killing for them, that they had gone into the thing uh, that their parents had told them to do, that they didn't like it. They were 30, 35, 40, 45. They had realized that what they really had always wanted to do was to, you know, whatever, get a PhD in history. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are here today talking with Carolyn Winter, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center, about choosing the humanities as a major and the ability to get a job when you do so. So I, I just want to follow up on that. You know, the, I think the place where this happens the most is medical profession. You know, you, the, the, you have to start for this so early. It squeezes out so much. And then these doctors around 35, 40, they finally there. And they, is this all there is? Is this it? And then we've got a big burnout problem. I, I, I absolutely agree. And in some ways, it's it's sad because medicine is such a humanistic profession. When a doctor listens to a patient, a patient is telling a story. Mm-hmm. And the doctor is primed to hear certain things in the story and not other things. But I want to double back on something you said, Dan, which is that they have to start so early in college. But I actually don't think that's true. Um, you know, universities like Stanford are not pre-professional um, schools. Right. They are here to offer a broad education. 
And ed- to educate future citizens, to educate future leaders, for that you have to know about humanity and the human condition. So medical schools can teach a lot of the things that they, of course, need doctors to teach. It What is happening is that the college curriculum itself is being hyper-populated by courses in the sciences that don't necessarily need to be done at the college level. At the undergrad level. At the undergrad level. And it is pushing humanities either out entirely or so late in a student's year, often um, into the senior year, that when a student does say, ah, you know, I took this great archaeology class and this was, or whatever, you know, art history, it's too late. It's too late to do anything about it. So they they have just dipped into it instead of drinking enough out of it. Right. So one piece of advice, I mean, this is why we do talk to the parents as they're dropping off their their freshmen-to-be, is that you want to let your kid explore early on, right? Because it could – you know why else? There's not archaeology in high school. There aren't certain courses in high school. You don't even know that you would like it because you haven't had a chance to explore it yet. No, that's right. And And everyone kind of knows, oh, I know what a doctor does. That's right. When I went to college, I was a Sputnik baby, so it was all math science. I took like one English course all of high school. I got to college and there were like these philosophy. Who knew people did this stuff? Right. Yeah. I entirely agree that just by necessity, high schools can't offer all of the 12 or 13 humanities there are. So students don't even know when they get here what what there is. So should should Stanford uh, make it so that you're not allowed to – Get, that no courses relevant to the major can be offered in the first year. I think that that would be a step in the right direction. You know, what do we owe to young minds? What is our responsibility as adults who know the value of the humanities and social sciences? What is our responsibility to them? It's we have to give them a chance. This is schools in with with Dan. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking today with Carolyn Winter about the humanities and majoring in the humanities and how you make those decisions. And I will say one thing about Stanford, and I know other universities do this as well, is they do encourage the freshmen to take courses in, it's called ways of thinking here, and to take some small seminars with professors. And a lot of times those are humanities courses to get them just to expand what it is that they might be interested in pursuing over the next four years, which is a nice thing. I also know that some medical schools are requiring some art history courses, which is really cool. And the explanation that I heard behind that is that when you're a doctor, not everything is black and white. And to take a course in aesthetics or art history helps you understand how to look differently at a problem, how to talk differently to a patient, because, how to because, hear and listen differently. Because Picasso's paintings are chopped up. Be- like yeah, yeah, that's what, why, what Dan. This? That's why. They want you to learn from Picasso and Rodin to, to body structure. Yeah. No, no, no. The idea of nuance this, this and, sound, and settling. This sounds like taking Latin to teach thinking. Is that not good to take Latin to teach thinking? Uh, it didn't. It, it hasn't proved out very well. It didn't it help you? Well, no, the research, there's research on this. So how do we get to the teaching of humanities? Because I think that's yeah, another so, problem, So let, right? me, let me ask this. Okay, a, a go little, for it. An, and this will possibly a hostile-sounding question. Okay. Uh, so at Stanford, students take this course, uh, CS106A, and it, it is the gateway drug into computer science. It's a really good course. It's highly interactive. The program, you know, you get a tremendous amount of feedback when you're programming. Humanities professor that I spoke to said, uh, no. The most important thing in the humanities is the perfect hour and a half lecture. 
And I, I kind of wanted to be snarky and say, and how many of your lectures are perfect one and a half hour lectures? But, but this does raise a question, which is, is, is some of the problem with getting students to pursue the humanities the way it's being taught? Yeah, I I would disagree with the idea that the perfect uh, drug administration method for the humanities is the one and a half hour lecture. <laughs> if you want to kill people, <laughs> yes. maybe. If yeah. you really don't want people to take your classes, you should only lecture. Oh, sounds I would horrible. say that the method for teaching the humanities is exactly what they have done in 106A. You know, good teaching is good teaching no matter where it happens. And uh, I was fortunate to go to a small liberal arts college. I went to Pomona College, you know, average class size about eight. And so you could do the humanities in the way that it's, you know, well, well done. You're you're with the teacher, you're with the professor, you're in the archive, it's hands-on. Every single assignment, you know, and it's due every day, right, is turned around overnight and back you are, you know, working on your analytic skills, your writing skills. So it, it, good teaching is is always interactive. And I think that in the humanities, uh, you know, one paradoxical good effect of, of falling numbers is that our classes are smaller. <laughs> we don't want to That's a silver that lining. Much. There you silver go, line. Caroline. I'm an optimist. Um, but one of my favorite things that I do, even in large classes, I teach the large lecture course in um, early American history, colonial, revolutionary America. The first month, we take all 100 kids into Stanford Special Collections. And there is the laying on of hands on actual cool stuff we have in the archives. We have an actual letter written by Ben Franklin. They get to touch it. His DNA is on it. Theirs is too. And and we talk about that letter. And what's wonderful about it, and, um, you know, I, ha- I haven't taken CS106A, uh, so I don't know if they do this, but I imagine they do, is that we get the students into question-asking mode. So it's not about answer delivery, which it can be their experience in high school sometimes because mm-hmm. they're teaching to the APUS yes, history yes. test. There's a right or wrong answer in the humanities. Right. When was the Wilmot proviso? You know, I right. actually don't know the answer. <laughs> that is I don't even field. know what the Wilmot proviso was. So we'll do another have. show on it. <laughs> but what they see when they see the Ben Franklin letter is, wow, who who did he write to? Why did he? It's a letter about digestion. How do we, why are we warm? Why are we warm blooded? And they want to know why are we warm blooded? Why did Franklin write this letter? Why do we have it in our archives? Why, 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 why? So they become question machines and, and that's useful anywhere. Yeah. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Carolyn Winter and learning about the humanities and the teaching of the humanities next on SiriusXM Insight 121. Students focus on what they were told, not paying attention to the situation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So they're not going to see anything new because they're so busy trying to copy what you told them. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Today we are talking with Carolyn Winter, who is the Anthony Meyer Professor in the Humanities and Director of the Stanford Humanities Center. And we've been talking about studying the humanities and, and why we should do it. So I want to keep keep on the question of instruction in the humanities. Uh, my, my experience was that it was a tremendous amount of solitary time. Uh, really, so in philosophy, it was basically a night reading one page of Descartes or something. Uh, and and so I I happen to be that kind of person, 
that, that likes that level of <laughs> – Likes to sit alone in a room and not talk to people. Is that what you're saying? You're antisocial, Dan. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Please see episode 12 where we discuss hands. So, so there's been, been some movement to liven it up. And, and I'm not sure if this is a pedagogical decision or whether this is really a change in the way we do humanities scholarship. And this is called the digital humanities so could you say a little bit about what that is? Sure. So the digital humanities is really just in the last 10 or 15 years, the whole corpus of the human experience from ancient Egypt to the present is getting digitized. So it's a very simple thing at, mm. at, at one level. And when you digitize something, you can do stuff to it uh, that you weren't able to do before. You used to have to travel to... Uh, let's say Philadelphia to read the papers of the founding fathers going, you know, rooting around in the archives and all that. Now you just turn on your computer and there are literally the handwritten letters of, mm. of George Washington, et cetera, right there in front of you. So there's been a massive democratization mm. of the humanities. You know, nice. sometimes they can seem very elitist, but, you know, you too can read the letters of Pharaoh from 4,000 years ago. Wow. Translated out of, you know, whatever ancient Egyptian into, into, into English. So that's wonderful. It also means that you can perform new kinds of operations on them. So you, you can, of course, read them, which is what we all lo love to do alone in, in a room. <laughs> but we can also um, do sort of measurements that never would have been possible before simply because of the scale. So, so is your work on Benjamin Franklin, his social network, take mm -hmm. advantage of this? Absolutely. So Ben Franklin lived from 1706 to 1790. This is the first century in which people's letter networks increase beyond just a couple hundred letters, which they've been since the ancient world. He had a letter network of sent and received over 20,000 letters no. yeah, oh my over gosh. the course of his life. What the heck? That's, that's more than is in my clutter box. Yeah. In my <laughs> and that's just surviving. And so wow. we can imagine a lot of his stuff was burned during the American Revolution. He took eight trips across the Atlantic, so it was at the bottom of the Atlantic. So we mapped a fair portion of his social network to see, you know, who's he writing to? Um, who are those people? What's their nationality? What's their gender? Where do they live? And what we really wanted to know was how did Ben Franklin go from obscurity, right? He's born a poor son of a candle maker in Boston, uh, to becoming the most famous American in the world mm. in the at, at, by the time he died in 1790. His face was famous wow. and his persona was famous. He was, you know, um, just celebrated everywhere. So there are obvious answers to that question. You know, he helped to win the American Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. But a, a lot of the answer lies in how he developed his social network. And he did it in a very strategic way. Um, and he used different people. We found that the role of women in his social network was really, really important. So digital humanities is really fun because it opens up new vistas for us while keeping the older way of doing the humanities intact. You can mm -hmm. still pick up a book and just read it. Yeah, very good. <laughs> You're very listening good. to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're speaking with Carolyn Winter, and we're talking about digital humanities and uh, Ben Franklin and his social network, which is pretty so, fascinating. It is. It is. So we're <clears throat> so Ben Franklin's interesting. You know, he did a lot to change the world. And uh, we've been talking about the effect of humanities on individuals. But, you know, one reason to go into the humanities is to have an effect on the world. And it's always struck me that the humanities uh, have been very important for, like, bringing in new voices to the table who weren't there, uh, like art, presages, 
sort of what are the issues of the future, and they help set the table. Is, is, is my intuition correct about this? Yeah. Uh, you know, the the humanities are an education for power because they are an education for understanding. And uh, when you have a deep understanding of how other human beings are thinking about their world, you have compassion for them. You have the ability to get into the mind of another person. I mean, basically, the humanities help to give you theory of, of mind. How must this other person be, be thinking about this? They force you to recognize the essential humanity of every other living person on earth. And, um, you know, I think that the musical Hamilton, I guess it's called Hamilton the Musical, yeah. is the official title, is actually a really wonderful example for how... Music and dance and a beautiful libretto can transform a narrative that was highly exclusive, like the narrative of the founding fathers. You know, white men made this country, right? And what Hamilton the musical did was to say, actually, uh, the the bastard son of a care, and I use that term technically. Yes, right? yes. Didn't know his father. It's part was. of the song. We we know. Okay, we know. You don't have to. <laughs> A, a Caribbean immigrant to New York City created this country. Right. And that changes the terms of who we are. And answering the question who we are is, I think, one of the most important ones that we have as Americans, as a nation of immigrants. Um, so the humanities can be a force for for inclusion and and radical togetherness and understanding. Um, Absolutely. And you know what was so cool about about Hamilton? My daughter's AP U.S. history teacher allowed them to play the music in the class as a way of learning. It, he turned on so many kids who would have been turned off, right? And then they got to write their own um, on different parts of history. I mean, it was just a really... Uh, it was a way to bring history alive, kind of like what you're, the Ben Franklin, you know, laying on the hands and, and you get to look at all the letters when they seem like real people. Because so many times history is just open up a book, read the question, answer the question, write a wrong answer. Boom. Yeah. And when you read Hamilton's second report on manufacturers, <laughs> which I have done, <laughs> you want to run away. Yes. But when you realize that he was an awesome rapper, then you want to stick around <laughs> a little longer. It's yeah. A so it's thing. a wonderful way to, to bring people in. And, you know, the younger students are, I teach high school students in our summer humanities institute here at Stanford, rolls around every summer. Um, the younger students are the more physical their education has to be. Um, and Hamilton taps that. You know, they want to nice. dance. So why not learn history by dancing? And dancing is humanity's subject in and of itself. Exactly. Uh, I'm just thinking of my first ethics course uh, that I took. There was no dancing in that course. Right. <laughs> it was really, it was very, very hard and unpleasant. Well, so well, I think that's kind of the, the the point here, right? That right. that it doesn't have to be, um, that if you, if you think of history as, ugh, Right. right. Why would I ever major in that? Right. It's think times are changing. So I, I skipped. I took AP history, and I I thought, well, there you go. I've done my intro history. I know and, it all. Yeah. So I jumped into medieval history as a course with mainly juniors and seniors, and I was surprised that it wasn't about damsels and knights. 
<laughs> what yeah. was it about? Uh, some uh, the turn a thousand did the some pope pre pope at the uh, the thousandth year since Christ. <laughs> Luckily, we have different ways of teaching the humanities these days, okay. and and I hope to to that we've t- cleared up the misconception that if you major in the humanities, you will not have a job. I can't imagine anything more important than the human condition than the humanities. Especially, you know, if we're human beings, right? We we, we need to know how to get along. We yeah. need when 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 push comes to shove, well, it's all about it's, it's all, all about the humanities. We also need to learn what counts as beautiful. Thank you, Carolyn Winter, for being a great guest, and thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight One Twenty One.